0: I am your host, Brad rolling in it's Wednesday night, deep into the night here, and joining me for part two of a three-part series, The Great Jeff Siegel. What's up, man?
1: I am fantastic. For those who listened to our last one, I had just gotten an injection in my elbow, and it really hurt, and now the injection <laughs> has settled in, and it feels great. And so I am very happy with that uh, particular choice to shoot my arm up with whatever they put in the needle.
0: Yeah, so people, uh, I think, probably, probably reacted to your, uh, n- I guess, non normal greeting last time. And this is not normal in the other direction, more positive. So,
1: yeah, positive tone not, for what you mean, an
0: interesting podcast.
1: Not usually <laughs> very positive, but I uh, feel feel good today. And my, my elbow feels good, and everything else is good. And playoffs are on, and everything is uh, hunky dory.
0: And we're right in your wheelhouse because you are on the West Coast and it's 1130 Eastern, but it's like right in prime time for you. So you should be feeling good. I'll be the one that's trying to fight through it here. And a nice flip from the normal when you're recording at like, I don't know, 430 or something for me. So um, if you missed the, the first podcast that we, that we just alluded to, that was basically we're going to be doing a three-part series to review the roster from this last year and look ahead a little bit as well, Work it down into three, I guess, non-traditional um groups, I suppose. The first one was the older guys on the roster. That was Vince Carter, Kit Bazemore, Dwayne Debman, and Plumley. Plumley. Uh, and this particular podcast that you're about to listen to right now is the young veterans, uh, the guys who are not rookies that are a little bit younger. And then we're going to save the rookies for the last one of these three. So the guys we'll, t- the guys we'll be talking about on this particular podcast are Alex Poitras, just favorite player in the league, Justin Anderson, my favorite player in the league, um, Alex Len, DeAndre Bembry, Torian Prince, and John Collins. So, um, big picture. We talked a little bit about the big picture last time on the on the podcast, just the overall tenor of the team. I don't think we have to go too deep into like a, oh it was a good season for the Hawks stuff because we've done that a little bit. So let's just dive in. Um, Alex Poitras was the guy who played the least out of these guys, and you actually wrote a a, a good uh, player breakdown of him because he's, of course, your guy on Patriots.com that went up, I guess, last week or so. He's interesting because he's, he was on a two-way contract and actually was never converted. We kind of assumed he was going to be converted, but by the time he got injured at the end, they didn't have to do that. So he actually is still on a two-way contract, and that kind of makes it intriguing for the future. So on the court first, what what'd you see from Poitras, and kind of what is he for people that don't really uh, have the same level of familiarity with him?
1: Uh, I mean, I think he's still, I mean, even though he's a little bit older, he's still sort of a work in progress in terms of like what he's going to be, like where you would sort of put him as sort of in the league as an NBA player. Like he's still, he's got so little experience that it's still sort of malleable as to what he could become. He's not, he's not somebody you would want, you know, the ball in their hands too much, but like as a wing He's got some athleticism. He's a pretty decent defender. He gives a lot of effort, and if he can make shots and if he can make, you know, catch and shoot threes, pretty much, he's going to be, you know, an NBA player. And I feel like that's uh, that's what they expected out of him coming into the year. He didn't play as much as uh, probably they would have liked, but I, you know, because of all the uh, the injury issues that he had this year, and and the fact that, you know, once Collins came back in the, uh, you know, in the later part of November. There wasn't really a place for Poythress in the rotation at that point, so he played a little bit in Erie, and then uh, and then obviously got hurt, and so that was the the end of his year. And so, you know, for for what you're you know you're looking for from him, it's more of a, you know, he can play the four for the most part. He can play a little bit of three. They actually put him out at the uh, at the center position a little bit this season, which is new for him. Uh, and if he can make shots, then he's going to be an NBA player. And if he can't, then uh, he won't. And that's kind of uh, where we're at with him at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a good, succinct way to put it. I think he's not that young. He'll be 26 in September. That's not crazy old either, but as someone who's sort of still bouncing around, that's not exactly where you normally find... um, you know where teams are normally looking for their future-facing young project kind of guys. Um, he probably needs to be more of a solid option. You know the two-way contract situation is one that I'm going to ask you to explain to people because that is a situation where you know he finishes the year on a two-way contract. The Hawks can pretty easily bring him back if they'd like to do that. Um, it's just whether they want to do that or not, given his age and given the the projection of him moving forward. I, I personally would have no problem with that because I think he is, you know. a Better than a normal, better than an average outcome for a two-way player. I think is Alex Alex Boithers, but I, I know that I'm a little bit higher on him than, than the consensus, and obviously you are even higher on him than I am. So maybe we're wrong about this. But what do you make of that, and kind of explain to people what that looks like moving forward? Because he isn't technically under contract right now for next year, but it wouldn't be tough for them to bring him back.
1: Yeah. So two-way contracts are are kind of weird once once the player finishes that two-way contract. So he is going to be a restricted free agent this summer assuming that they give him a qualifying offer, but it's not like Justin Anderson, a guy we're going to talk about in a second, where his qualifying offer doesn't cost them anything. His quali- a two-way qualifying offer is literally just another two-way contract. There's no extra guarantee. there's no any you know there's really no, no, no anything. He if they are willing to give him $50,000, which in the grand scheme of uh, you know $110 million dollar payroll is not very much, they're they're going to have him back on a uh, at least on that qualifying offer and then they have restricted rights depending on how it how it works out. We saw this with uh, Tyrone Wallace out of the Los Angeles Clippers last year. He was a bigger part of their team than Poitras was in his in his first two way year, but he they gave him that that qualifying offer and just let him figure it out. But teams aren't necessarily going to you know go out of their way to sign Alex Poitras because. Any reasonable deal is probably going to get matched, and any reasonable deal is probably going to be a minimum contract, so it's almost definitely going to get matched because it doesn't really, you know, it still doesn't cost uh, cost the Hawks too much financial flexibility. So it's it's a it's a tough spot for for those guys. I mean, you know, two way restricted free agency in general is incredibly unfair to the restricted free agents. Usually, and we'll talk about this with Anderson. Usually, the qualifying offer is at least something that the player can fall back on. And say, okay, well, at least if I didn't get anything else I wanted in free agency, at least I have this. You know, for Anderson, it's three point six million dollars for next season. Poitras doesn't get that. Poitras gets, you know, he get he's going to get whatever he's, he, you know, fifty thousand dollars plus a two way contract, and that's, uh, you know, that's unfortunate for him. But I think it's it's something that the the league will, you know, hopefully take a look at in the next in the next uh, collective bargaining agreement and try to at least give these guys a little bit more because the only guys who are making it to two-way restricted free agency are the best two-way guys because otherwise you can just swap them out for another guy and there's no reason to to keep them on your books but the the best guys are making it to restricted free agency but they're not being compensated as as much as they should be
0: yeah and I mean there's a situation where a team might offer Poythress a full guaranteed contract then the Hawks may may not want to give him that and maybe they, they let him go that wouldn't be crazy but um you know, I think he's worth a two-way contract to be sure. He was, you know, he was fine. I mean, it obviously didn't appear as many games as you would like because of the injury. But when he played, he's he's fine. He's not someone who's going to, you know, overwhelm you necessarily. But Portris is someone who should be around the league somewhere. I'm not sure he should be on a full full deal just now. Like, definitely locked in guaranteed. But, you know, he wouldn't be out of place on that deal. He's probably better than some players who have a full, fully guaranteed deal. So, just one of those things. Uh, we can move on from there because we have plenty to get to on this podcast. But... Um, you reference Justin Anderson. He's someone who has a very interesting summer ahead. But on the court, Anderson didn't play all that much and kind of a lot less than I know I thought he was going to. I think you probably agree with me, at least early in the season. And then down the stretch, he was suddenly suddenly in the rotation, and part of that was injury-driven. But by the time even guys were coming back in the last couple weeks, he was still playing pretty much in every game and made four starts and appeared in 48 games. So what looked like a completely lost season, you know, maybe even a month ago, six weeks ago, now feels better because he was able to play and play reasonably well on the stretch.
1: Yeah, I mean, he at least he did you know he was able to get in there down the stretch and didn't you know what didn't completely wasn't completely awful in 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 this stretch i think he was you know actually pretty solid in in a once he got a consistent role of like okay he's going to play you know 10 12 15 minutes a game off the bench i think that uh that worked out for him and he you know he was able to knock down a couple of shots i mean he's such a black hole offensively and not necessarily like the ball gets to him and he just stops Everton
0: watch your toe, jeff He's, Come on now.
1: <laughs> he's just not that good like he's he's not like he he can't shoot and he's you know if we talk about what like we just talked about like what Alex Poitras could be as a shooter like Anderson is sort of the worst case scenario for what Poitras might be I think going forward you know because the the Anderson the the thing that he brings to the table at, at, at his peak is defense but I wasn't like I wasn't incredibly overwhelmed with his defensive acumen to the point where I was okay with them playing him over some other guys because you know he he obviously I mean he's he's such a negative on offense that he his defense really does have to be elite for him to to be a role player in the league and I'm just I wasn't overly impressed with with him on that end this year
0: yeah I think actually his defense was not as good as I thought it was going to be when he was finally playing more. Um, I'm not really sure why that would have been. He's still, f- he's not a problem on that end of the floor, but not, not a super-duper strength in the way that I kind of thought he would be. You know, looking at his career numbers for Anderson, he's been reasonably efficient. You know, 53% true shooting for his career about a 13 PER that's not bad but when you factor in his very low usage most of the time it's not um an overwhelming package and I know people know that I love him and it's kind of, I'm just being funny with Jeff earlier on Anderson I definitely think he's not a good offensive player um that's something that I'm not even um I'm not delusional about that I promise um I think he has a place in the NBA and I think um the way that he's kind of been treated not not by the team necessarily but like by the I don't know. The media is the wrong word. Like, fan base, like, feels like people think, he, think he's, like, 30 years old, and he's not. He's 25, but he he sort of turned into this, like, sage veteran presence for the Hawks this year. Not quite like Vince, but he was kind of referred to in some ways as, like, this behind-the-scenes leader type, um, mentor type, and it's like, he's 25. He's just finishing his, his rookie contract after being a first-round pick. So, he's uh, younger than people think he is, would be my only point there. But, yeah, I, I mean, he's not someone who should be getting a, a big contract or anything like that. I do think that he's an NBA player that should be in the NBA next season full stop, whereas I'm less convinced of that with Poythress. I think he's a better player than Poythress, but I, I do think they're closer than it may seem, which is interesting in a lot of ways. Um, and we talked about this a second ago with Anderson, but his qualifying offer is probably more than he is worth. So that's a situation where the Hawks probably can't offer it because if, if they do, he's going to take it, at least he should take it, and that kind of puts him in a weird spot because if, he, if that offer gets declined, he hits the market again, and I think he'll get a contract somewhere. But it's not like he's, he's going to land in a pile of money either.
1: Yeah, I mean, 3.6 million would be twice as much as he probably is going to get on the on the open market. His his minimum is going to be you know roughly 1.6 million, 1.7 million somewhere in through there. You know, I think that's that's what he's looking at. You know, after a year where he barely played, fewer than 500 minutes, didn't you know wasn't Unbelievably great in those minutes, you know, fifty-two percent true shooting uh, in uh, just for this year. Obviously, he was a little bit better throughout his, you know, his entire career to this point. He is worth a minimum contract, like he's worth a fully guaranteed minimum contract in a way that Poitras might not be, just because he hasn't proven it quite as much as Anderson has. Also, Anderson being just like one of the great human beings in the league helps a lot. The fact that he's younger also helps. You know, he's he's somebody who you know, as you ask around at at exit interviews in terms of just what did you, you know, for the for the rookies, for the younger guys, you ask them what they got out of being next to Vince and being next to Bazemore and talking to those guys, talking to those veterans. All of them would just bring up Justin Anderson, like not prompted, not like what do you think of Justin Anderson's leadership or what did you, you know, how did you connect with Justin Justin Anderson? They would just be they just spouted his his name, uh, you know, sort of off the cuff, and so you know you can tell that he had a you know had a an outsized influence on uh, on some of the younger guys, and that that matters. I mean, if you're gonna you know take a you know you're gonna give a minimum contract to a fifteenth guy, you know having him be a, a great human being is is going to be very important. You know he's going to play a lot in practice. He's going to be around the team a ton as a as a minimum guy. He's going to you know help drive that culture of you know, accountability and practices and stuff like that. And he, I think Anderson does that. And so that's where, you know, it's not necessarily where a lot of his value lies, but there's, I think if he were, if he had a different personality, I think there would be questions as to whether he's, you know, really a a minimum guy or more on the fringes of the league altogether. But just as a, as a as a human being i think you would want to have this guy around and there are worse ways you can spend your 15th roster spot than on a, on a great guy who's going to you know push your guys defensively in, in practice and really be you know and be somebody who's fine with a a you know 14th or 15th man role on a team
0: yeah, I think he wants to play more, but he's also someone that would obviously handle it very well if he wasn't playing like he did this year. Um, you mentioned this before, it's worth repeating once one more time, is that the swing skill for Anderson is his shooting. You know, he's a career thirty percent three-point shooter. You know, for all of the things that I think he does pretty well, that's it's kind of untenable unless you're just an absolutely ridiculous defender. Um, which he, you know, he's good on defense, but just not he's not Tony Allen. He's not prime Tony Allen. So he's got to make more shots to be um, the guy that I think he could be if he made more shots. Um, there's some offensive talent. You've seen him uh, a little bit. He had a, he had one big game down the stretch where he kind of had it cooking off the dribble a little bit, which is kind of strange. But he, uh, you know, he was more of an offensive player in some ways in college, so maybe that's still in there, buried away. And I think one path that could be explored for Anderson is playing more at the four. Um, that's something the Hawks didn't do a ton with him, but they did it a little bit at times. And we, you and I, even I think on this podcast before the season started, talked about him and sort of the Vince Carter role. Of that, like you know, maybe third string power forward type, but sort of a different look kind of thing. They didn't really do that a lot, but because of his bulk and his heft, he could be more of that like combo forward type, and that would help to mitigate the shooting issues a little bit if he could stick there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I expected him with Omari Spellman being a, a huge question mark coming into the season. Of course, I expected Anderson to be the backup for, the backup four you know, pretty much from from the get go. And, you know, obviously, Vince, we as we talked about on the last show, and as I've sort of written about throughout the year, Vince has blown me away with the fact, you know, how much he's been able to actually give them on the court as a a positive, a positive influence on the court and off the court. But really, you know, the fact that Vince was able to play at a role player level, he beat out Anderson for those minutes. And, and there's, you know, I can't. You can't look at that and be, and think that Anderson deserved those minutes over Vince. He, you know, Vince beat him out for those minutes. And you know, I guess we we expected more out of Anderson. You know, this year I think his, you know, his shooting being the swing skill is is obviously the the biggest thing for him offensively. But you know, from from where he is now, as a, as from in with his reputation, what it is as a non-shooter, he's going to have to be a 35% three-point shooter on pretty decent volume for a couple years before teams are really guarding him guarding him out there and i think that's that's almost more impactful than what he actually shoots is that the fact that nobody guards him and nobody really respects the the fact that he has any offensive game
0: Yeah, that's a big uh, thing that a lot of guys face. It's not a a, a situation that's uh, unique to Justin Anderson, but that's probably enough on him. Only you and I could talk about um, Anderson and and Poitras for 17 minutes, I think, of this podcast. to this point, we have four guys remaining, Jeff, but before we get to those guys, I want to take a minute to remind everybody to subscribe, to this podcast. Um, you get a lot of content, hopefully, um, over the next couple of months. Uh, we're not we're not going to fade away at all after the season ends, of course. It's pretty much over now for the Hawks. Um, and, you know, plan to go, get to between draft workouts and the draft is coming, the lottery, free agency. Jeff is a cap expert. He'll be joining me regularly, as usual, to talk about all kinds of different things. And then we'll, of course, ramp back up for next season. So, so please subscribe to this podcast, Apple Podcast, Himalaya, Spotify, Stitcher, Tuning radio, Overcast, all those places, and we'll be back again in just a few seconds with more from Jeff Siegel. All right, guys, we're back, and uh, former players to get to. Jeff, can, can we do this in the next hour? Uh, that re- that remains to be seen. Um, <laughs> let's go to Alex Lynn, who. You know, it was kind of a big story down the stretch because he had the monster game where, you know, his career highs a couple times down the stretch and was playing a ton of minutes because when Devon was out, he became the full-time starter. And Len is, you know, the first guy we've talked to him about on this podcast that's under contract for next season at a, you know, a pretty reasonable number. He had a sort of a breakout in some ways. I know I liked that deal when it happened, but people thought it was an overpay in some circles. I sort of understood that he was very good, by far the best season of his career. So with that as the backdrop here, what did you see from Alex Len?
1: I mean I thought he was another guy like Dwayne Dedman last year who showed that the three point shot was part of his arsenal. I mean he's he's not somebody that you're running off screens like they were for Dedman in in 2017-18, but he's somebody who can stand in the corner and knock down some shots. He can knock down some shots from, you know, above the break. His his footwork on pick and pops are not, you know, isn't fantastic, but it's fine. You know, he's he's he showed more in in that realm than I had expected coming in. You know that's something that we've seen across the board with Atlanta. You know whether it's Lloyd Pierce or Mike Budenholzer, he you know those guys are are development experts and they're able to to get these guys to shoot threes from uh, you know from any position. And and Len fell right into to that uh, to that trend. And so I think that was the the biggest thing that we saw from him this year. And and something that if Dwayne Dedman is not on the team next year and they don't they decide not to spend. You know, uh, uh, any more of their cap space or room exception on bringing in another center, Len can at least fill in yeah, maybe 60% of what Deadman was. You know, he's not as versatile defensively. He's a little bit bigger, not quite as not quite as quick on the perimeter, not quite as you know. He doesn't have the good the the footwork that Dwayne Deadman has, and he doesn't necessarily have all of the three-point shooting that Deadman has. But he can do you know, he can protect the rim a little bit, he can rebound a little bit, he can get in on the offensive glass pretty well, and he can make standstill spot-up threes. And so I think that's, you know, I think he, as a theory of how he fits next to John Collins, it it sort of makes sense. It's not as great as as Deadman would be, but uh, it's not, it wouldn't be the end of the world if he went into the season as the, uh, as the starting center next year.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, that isn't an optimal outcome, but I do think that Lin... Lynn wouldn't be a terrible choice as a starting center. I think he's a high-end backup with what he did this year, and that's a very solid player. You know, he's still pretty young. That was why I liked the deal in the first place is that he was just 20. This was his year, um, I guess, you know, age 25 season. He was efficient. He was uh, – the shooting was sort of a revelation in some ways. I, I agree with you that he's not the uh, – it doesn't, it doesn't have the same utility that Dedman has as a shooter, but by the end, he was not shy. He was getting them up. He was uh, taking advantage of the, the fact that he was at a – had sort of an improvingly quick trigger it was like getting it off quickly being more confident being more aggressive and they definitely coached that into him as well they wanted him to shoot the ball from three-point range and at the end of the year i think he shot what 36 percent from three that's pretty solid on reasonable like a reasonable volume like you know more than 200 attempts after i think he attempted like a total of like 20 or 25 before the season started so uh, that that uptick was impressive. The one thing that I wanted to circle um, numbers wise is that his rebounding was actually a career worst this year, which is something to monitor because he's getting a little bit older. You know, I'm not going to panic about that because he's still a solid rebounder in my opinion. But it was a uh, pretty Pretty severe drop off from where he was in Phoenix as a defensive rebounder. Um, part of that might might have been scheme stuff. I'm I'm not smart enough to know that necessarily, and didn't I won't, I won't I won't claim to watch all of his Phoenix time. But that's something that I think if I had to pick one area where he actually. Didn't meet my expectations. It was probably as a rebounder because everything else he he probably exceeded them, especially the shooting, of course. But you know, as a rim protector, he's pretty solid. His uh, he's just a massive human being. I think people don't really realize how big he is. He's a legit like seven two kind of guy. He's really big, um, which is helpful around the rim. Um, You're definitely right that he's not as good in space as Dedmon is, and as a result of that, him and Collins isn't the greatest pairing in the world. But they did make it work, um, especially down the stretch when Lem, Lem was playing a lot. And I think in general. He was worth his contract this year and probably even a little bit more than that. So uh, you know, sign me up for the Alex Lynn experience for another year, but if you if you have something to look at in a more, you know, I guess inqu- inquisitive light, it might be as rebounding for me.
1: Yeah, I think the I'm not I, I again, I I don't know exactly what uh, what changed between his Phoenix days and his Atlanta days. It might have uh, it, it might have something to do with the with the scheme in Phoenix versus the scheme in Atlanta. It might have something to do with playing with John Collins who who swallows up a lot of rebounds. You know, guys like that who on the on the Hawks were, were the Hawks were more egalitarian in their defensive rebounding, I think, across the board, uh, especially on the on the defensive end. I think they were it was more of a box out and whoever can get it, just get it. It's more of a team rebounding experience than it was uh, in Phoenix, where Len was, you know, I, you know Len is always going to be the biggest guy on the floor for his team. But. I think he played a more traditional center role, much closer to the basket defensively and was, you know, charged with getting a lot of those defensive rebounds whereas in Atlanta it feels like he was a little bit more of part of the uh, team rebounding scheme that sort of spread the spread the defensive rebounds out across uh, across all five guys or at least across, you know, the the three front court players. And I think the the one thing with Len in terms of going into next season as a starting center, if he's I think a lot of, whether he can be a starting center or not might not have as much to do with him as it does with a guy like John Collins, who, if John can play center going into next year, if he can really play, like, basically, if if, if Collins can play the Derek Favors role as the starting power forward and the backup center, that would save the Hawks, like, $10 million in terms of having to go out and spend <laughs> on a starting center. Yeah. And that would be that would be something where... Len can come in, and he can basically start the games with Collins at the four, and then you, you, you yank Len you know, relatively early in the first quarter, and Collins plays the five for the rest of the quarter, and then Len comes in and essentially plays like the backup center minutes, but he's still the starter, if that makes sense, and you don't close with him as, at the starting spot, but it means that Collins is going to have to be able to play like 24 minutes a, a game at starting center. And the other 24 minutes goes to Alex Len, and and then Collins, of course, plays, you know, eight to 10 minutes as the uh, as the power forward next to next to Len, so that Collins can have his his regular allotment of of minutes based on you know how good he is and how important he is to the team. But that requires Collins to be able to hold up half the game at center, including closing second and fourth quarters and and playing in the the most important moments of the game. And so that's going to be up to Collins whether he can do that or not I think that would be something that if they can know going into free agency and they're going to get back into the gym uh, for workouts on May 6th is what Lloyd Pierce said so they're going to have almost two months of of workouts with the team of, of you know all the guys including I believe even the guys who are coming up on free agents free agency like Anderson and Deadman and, and Vince Carter and and I think that's where if the team can see that Collins is making some strides and they believe in him as somebody who can play center for half the game, then you don't really need another center on the roster because you have Alex Len, you have Amari Spellman and a sort of a breaking case of emergency guy. You have Miles Plumley, who we talked about last time as somebody who wants to play more next year and hopefully will be healthier and, and can give them minutes at the, at the five spot as well. So I think that's where Len's starting role might come from is the fact that, he, does, he can be the starter, you know, sort of ostensibly, but really be more of the backup behind Collins as they split the center minutes. And then you, you know, th- that's $10 million they don't have to spend on either Dwayne Dedman or a, another starting center. Yeah,
0: it's an interesting thought experiment. I mean, if I had to bet, I would certainly imagine that the Hawks are going to have another guy, whether it be Dedman or a free agent or a rookie. They'll probably have someone just because that's just kind of the, their mo, their modus operandi right now. Um, I don't think that they are willing to let Collins play that much at center. I am very much um, still in the camp that he should be tried there a little bit more. I'm not in the, uh, there's a group that's like given up on that entirely. And I am not in that group. I think I have softened a little bit on thinking that he just is a center. And that's, that's kind of where I was a year ago. I think that isn't that that's probably that ship is kind of sailed. I'm not sure that he's ever going to just be a primary center at this point in time, which is okay. But you know, to the point of Lynn, I think they will do something else. You know, I'm not um opposed to what you're saying there, but I think with the way that they have treated Collins, they have referenced him as someone who could play both spots. But unless they just have you know, incredible foul trouble or weirdness. Collins has maybe played, you know, five minutes a game, seven minutes a game at center. And granted, they have two guys. But even down the stretch, when they didn't have guys available, Collins was playing, you know, maybe, maybe a center or two at center. He was never playing... That much, and I think they don't just. I think they're not really ready for him to do that. Maybe that'll change in the future, but you know, Len is someone who, again, you know, just posted career bests in his, you know, three-point shooting, obviously, but even um, you know, career career career-low turnover percentage. Like he was much much better in that in that way. His usage was was way up, which is kind of surprising. Like he he had a career-high usage, which is kind of surprising. Again, given the way that the Hawks were sort of building their team, so a guy who's maturing still and is still pretty young, even when, when even when he was signed. They definitely looked at that as a future-facing move. It was a multi-year contract for a reason, and I think they'll probably put even more on his plate this year if he can stay healthy. So all that to say, it wouldn't surprise either of us if he's the starting center. Um, I would probably bet on him not be the starting center if I had to pick one or the other just as a projection. That's not sourced, but just knowing sort of how the team operates. But it wouldn't surprise us then given that, you know, coming into last season, he was, like, considered to be a big-time bust. Um you know i understand that cuz he was a top 5 pick and you know if you just think top 5 pick he's not been that kind of player but he's a pretty solid nba rotation player right now which is kind of all he needed to be in atlanta
1: yeah i mean it's it's still even as as well as he played for for the hawks this year it's still a bust because he was the number 5 pick and he's not you know yeah, that's really I mean. <laughs> a, a starting level player but it's it's you know he there's a difference between he's a bust and he can't play nba basketball you know and he's in that middle range where a lot of people don't there's a lot of of difficulty with assessing guys who are clearly busts but are not like so bad that they're out of the league it's a lot it's a lot harder for people to sort of wrap their minds around where that guy fits in the grand scheme of things and i think len as a low a very low end starter or a a sort of mid to high high tier backup you know i think he's he's been fine and he's going to continue to to be fine for the hawks
0: yeah for sure and uh, that's probably enough on alex for now we'll come back to him because he's one of the guys that we actually know will be around (laughs) after this season um okay let's go to deandre Bembry, who had a really interesting season because he was famously you know not able to play for for a variety of injury reasons and obviously just being a young guy at different points but then he turns around and plays all 82 games he was the only player on the roster that appeared in all 82 games trey young probably would have done that if they had not rested him of course in the last week of the season but um in the record books 82 games remember he's the only one that did that so um, that was kind of the big picture story. It was just like, this is a guy who might even, who, there was like some talk about his option not being picked up before the season. And then he turns into an every single game rotation player for this Hawks team. Now, there are still strengths and weaknesses with Benbury that are very sharp. But, you know, on the positive side, just at the outset here, the durability and just kind of proving that he's an NBA player was nice to see
1: yeah I mean just for for somebody like me and I think you you fall in this boat as well we both really like him we both really liked his game coming into the league we expected not huge things out of him as as a sort of a, a mid-tier first round pick but something you know we expected him to be a role player and to be sort of a, an interesting guy coming in and obviously his first two years were just sort of lost through injury and and his first year was mostly lost through just being a rookie in Mike Budenholzer's system and not really you know being able to to crack the rotation in the way that Torian Prince did and then last year was just completely lost through injury, so it was really great to just see him out there consistently, able to be healthy and and play all eighty two, like you said, and be a, a big part of the team's rotation. I think that's that's the biggest takeaway from me for me from this season for him. It's not necessarily like obviously there are skill based things and there are individual parts of his game that are you know that we that he could improve on or, or that he you know is already quite good at. But the the biggest thing for him was the fact that he got to play all eighty two and he was healthy throughout the season and he really established himself as not not a fringe guy and 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 more of a guy who really does you know belong at the NBA level.
0: Yeah, I mean now that we've sort of established that, we could drill down a little bit on his actual play because you know he's it's still sort of a similar story in some ways of what you know he can do and what he can't do. The big glaring weakness of his game is that he can't shoot still. Uh, 29% from three this year on, um, you know, not incredibly high volume, but 173 attempts. It's just not really coming around. You know, there were moments where it looked better, but that's the swing skill for him. It kind of always was. He turns the ball over too much as well. That's something that we talked about quite a bit early on in the year when everyone on the team was turning the ball over, and he was a big part of that. Um, It did sort of calm down a little bit after that, and it was a little bit of a, it was still too high, 17% turnover rate, just too much for someone of his, of his ilk on the wing, but so th- those are kind of the two things on offense, and then defensively, he's actually pretty good. Um, I think better than advertised coming into the league. He's a he's a really good athlete, which I think people don't really realize about memory because he was he came in as an older guy from a relatively smaller program in St. Joe's. So people just kind of assume that he's this like really you know crafty. Guy, like, but he's really a good athlete. Like, he's not an elite athlete, but you could see him on the upper the floor. He kind of turns it on a little bit, and uh, defensively, that sort of plays up a little bit. He's really good on the perimeter, especially when guarding, um, when, when defending guards. He has some size issues, and I think that's something that probably caps his ceiling a little bit defensively. Like, if you, if you play him against a big physical, you know, legitimate 6'8, 6'9, small forward type, he isn't the greatest against those guys, but against guards, he was probably the best defender on the team this year. So You know, all that to say, strength and weaknesses are there. The shooting thing, though, is just the big thing that everyone will talk about. And it's for a reason, because if he can't make shots, his ceiling is so much more limited.
1: Yeah, and I think we we talked about this with Anderson a minute ago, where Anderson's swing skill is literally his shooting, because there's no chance that he's going to do anything else offensively, that Anderson really has to shoot to be a rotational NBA player. Bembry... I'm not 100% convinced that if the three never comes around, that he can't still be an NBA player, but the turnovers then have to to be better. So yeah, it's one for sure. I mean, that's
0: that's the thing with him. Like we've we've now seen him be, you know, he, he's he's on he's on a pretty bad basketball team, but he is not an embarrassing NBA rotation player right now without the shot. So it's not a situation where he can't function. And even coming into the league, that was a situation where. People thought Anderson was going to be able to shoot because he shot at well in college. Bembry, that was the big question with him as a, as a prospect. And everyone kind of agreed that he could do everything else. It was just can he shoot. And that hasn't come around, but he does have better skills, which you're about to highlight, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest, I think the, the most surprising thing from early in the season, and, and I was around the team a little bit in the like the very first few home games of, of the year, is that Lloyd Pierce would harp on the fact that Bembry was the only guy on the team who didn't need a screen to get to the rim. And he could just get past anybody. And he was and and that showed up throughout the season over and over. And obviously the turnovers were there. And he's a good passer when the ball gets to where it's supposed to go. Like he has some highlight passes that you go, oh, okay, this guy is is a, a secondary creator. And then he's got turnovers that are like, okay, this guy should never pass the ball because he just you know can't hit can't hit the right guy. So it's he's got some turnover issues. I think the he can get away with having one of the shot or the turnovers be a weakness. He can't get away with both of them being a weakness if he's going to be, you know, a high-end rotation player long term. He can't turn the ball over 17% of the time and shoot 29% from 3. One of those two things has to give. I think at this point given what we know about him that the turnovers are more likely to to go away than the three-point shot is likely to to raise up into the 35 to 38% range. You know, so I think that's where he his value can lie as a secondary creator type who doesn't necessarily need to shoot the ball super well as long as he can you know retain his off the dribble skills as long as he can retain that that athleticism as long as he can cut down on the turnovers he can be a Relatively positive offensive player, just with the without the three point shot. As long as he can cut down on the turnovers, and then you, like you like you mentioned, the defense is already you know above average for for a two guard who can also guard ones.
0: He's definitely a defense first player, um, which I think people don't really realize until you watch him for a while. I know we would talk about it on this podcast throughout the season, but Vember is a defense first player. Offensively, he has some flashes, like like you were saying. But it's a general weakness right now as an offensive player. So I think year four will be a big one. Obviously, year three was a huge one for memory just to establish the fact that he can play at the NBA level and not be a rookie anymore. Even early in the year, they were kind of treating him like a rookie because he hadn't gotten to 82 games yet. That was kind of the, the big thing that you know the, the, the locker the locker room was poking fun at him for still being a rookie despite being in year three because he hadn't played 82 games yet. Now that he's done that in mean, one season, year four will be big for him because of what you said. Offensively, that's the big question. You know, he's already on the contract with the Hawks. He'll be a um, potentially he'll be a restricted free agent potentially, but he'll be a free agent of some sort at the end of next season, and then we'll talk more about that then. But um, you know, looking ahead, Benbury is not the, is not that young either. It's something that. Um, people have, I think, almost forgotten about both he and Prince, who's the next guy we're going to talk about. Those guys were both older guys in the draft. Bembry will be 25 in July, which isn't super old, but as someone who's about to only be in their fourth season, it's not that young either. You kind of almost are what you are. For the most part, that's not a foolproof thing. But when you get to 25, 26, you're probably mostly what you are, and Bembry will have to prove now that he's had the full season. He's had what I presume to be a full summer of health coming up here. He'll have the opportunity to sort of correct his weaknesses to a certain to to a certain degree, and if he can do that, we'll see what he looks like moving forward. But I do think he did benefit. It's something that, as someone who likes him, I will still say this out loud. I think he benefited this season from the Hawks kind of needing um, another guy. Like I'm not sure how many teams he would have been in the rotation for for all 82 games. You know what I mean? Like he did, he did, he does benefit just from the fact that he had opportunities that I'm not sure he would have been given in every other place.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that there are 20 teams in the league that he would have been like the 13th or 14th guy and wouldn't have played yeah, that's very what much. I mean. You know, he's he, because he hadn't proven anything and because those teams would have been either in the playoffs or fighting for the playoffs, like I just don't think that he would have gotten... That kind of opportunity uh in most places, I would imagine that. Be the Hawks being as bad as they were and as as needy as they were on the wing, I think that really really helped him, and that's going to help him next year. You know, depending on how they they construct this team, I think he's earned a look as a as a rotation wing for the the the, the team next year. Of course, you know, depending on on where they go with their draft picks, where they go with free agency, what kind of team they construct for you know going into next year, but I do think that he's he would not have gotten a similar opportunity on a lot of teams. And and that's what a lot of the NBA is about. A lot of the, the guys who grow into being rotation players can look back on their first few years in the league and think I wouldn't have been, I couldn't have made it past where I, you know, made it past being a rotation guy had I not been given maybe undeservedly a rotation spot early in my career, even though, he did he did deserve it on this team but he wouldn't in a vacuum i don't think that he's you know necessarily was a rotation guy coming into the year um and it maybe isn't still a rotation guy on most teams uh, i think he's a little bit you know he's he's much better than he was a year ago but he's not you know with the, those weaknesses any playoff team probably doesn't have him you know super high in the rotation maybe he's you know the the 11th or 12th man on on most playoff teams you know so i think it's uh He's, hes certainly benefited from the fact that the Hawks uh, have gone into this rebuild as it, as it sort of timed out with his third year in the league and when he was able to get healthy. So you know from that perspective it's been it's been great for him and, and it'll continue it should continue into next year to be you know really great for him. So you know we'll see where he can go from here. We'll see if he can cut down on the turnovers or, or up the three-point shot but you know the one thing about his age is is probably, that he'll see some athletic decline at some point in the next three years or so. I mean, he's still firmly in his prime at 25. So, you know, it's not something that we're, that anybody should be panicking about, but there is a point at which the, the athleticism will start to fall off. Hopefully the plan, you know, for, for him going forward is that the, He'll up his skill level at, to to a point where he can offset that. I think that's how a lot of guys get to 28, 29, 30, 31 without much of a drop off, and that's why those years are still their prime years, is because the athletic the athleticism does begin to decline at like 25 or 26, but they can up their skill level to a point where they you don't notice it until the athleticism really declines in in sort of the you know 33, 34 range.
0: Yeah, I mean, and last last thing here on his role for next year, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the next couple of months, but he's a guy who could be out of a rotation spot without doing anything wrong. Because if the Hawks were to draft one, is, I think one is kind of a safe assumption that they're going to take a wing at some point in this draft. And if you end up taking more than one, and then you still have Kent Baysmore and you have Torian Prince, and you have um, Kevin Herter, you're suddenly getting pretty crowded. So... Bembry had the benefit of sort of a uh, a clean slate and a clear rota- uh, clear depth chart to some degree this year. He may not have that benefit next year, even in even with the team still rebuilding, if they draft over him with a guy or two and still hold on to Prince and, B- and Baysmore, which isn't a lock by any means on any of those things. He could be in a spot where he suddenly doesn't do anything wrong, but is like now the fifth wing. And that's a very different position to be in than he was this year when he was clearly the fourth wing and really, you know, because of all the injuries to guys like Bazemore and prince he was the third or second wing a lot of the season um kind of weirdly and that might not be the case next year that's something to just keep in mind in the back of your head when discussing memory because you know he might be a better player next year that just ends up playing less cuz that's just the nature of the beast
1: yeah i mean it's it's certainly possible that this is the this might be the high watermark of of his playing time for you know for his rookie scale contract and and that would be unfortunate for him cuz it's not something that necessarily he would have regressed in any way i think he's progressed over the last year but uh he might not progress enough and the 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 team might not have enough of an investment in him in order to you know keep giving him uh, playing time as as one of the you know the big four rotation wings
0: yep that's just uh it's probably enough on memory but uh something just keep in mind when kicking around stuff over the next couple of months okay two more guys to talk about jeff uh one of which is an absolute core member of the rotation moving forward and every respect. And the other may not be, and he's something that we'll, we'll go to him now and that's Torian Prince because for the last, I don't know, few months we'll, we'll say to be courteous. He's been, um, a trade guy who's been discussed, um, going back to February. I know I remember talking to you, uh, by a different a couple of different things on this podcast and off this podcast about trade stuff and hearing Prince's name a lot from people around the league uh he was in some real trade rumor stuff but then he settled in after he came back from injury and was a little bit better because I thought he he struggled pretty mightily at times early in the season, especially defensively he was you know he's been maddening on that end of the floor for now two seasons for the most part but I thought he was genuinely better in the last couple of weeks when he was playing healthy again and kind of you know had it going and playing a little bit with it more within himself on offense et cetera so if I was just going to ask you what you thought of Torrey Prince's third season, that's a sort of a big picture topic. But I'll let you dive in on wherever you want to.
1: I mean, I think this was probably still the best year of his career. Even though you know there were some some concerns with the defense, there were some concerns with him playing in sort of an outsized role for for what his skill set is. But I still think that this was probably still his best season. I mean, he improved his efficiency from the field once again. Um, you know, when he was on the court with Trey Young. He provided a, a really you know, he's he's I mean, he was the team's best shooter by numbers in the regular season. He's probably the team's, you know, maybe third or fourth best shooter overall, you know, when you when you take into consideration that Trey has sort of come on over the last few months of the year and that Kevin Herter's very good and Vince Carter's also in that conversation. But, you know, Prince is still a very, you know, high thirties, low forties three point shooter. And he's gonna remain, you know, in that that stead for for quite a few years now. And so I think that's where he he continued to solidify himself as an elite three-point shooter, maybe not an elite three-point shooter, but just in that tier right below elite, like well above average, but not necessarily like a, you know, JJ Redick type of, of shooter, but he was able to, you know, they were able to pull, you know, run him off screens. And, and he was a, he had a lot of gravity as a spot up threat. And I think he's, he's somebody that teams really do have to worry about from beyond the arc. And that's, Just as important as whether he makes his shots at this point. Like he's the fact that teams respect him means that he's having an effect on every single possession that he's on the floor, whether he touches the ball, whether he shoots the ball or not. Just being out there creates space for everybody else. And so I think that's, you know, that's why three point shooting is so important in this day and age. And that's why we talk about it so much with wings. And, and with perimeter guys, is like, if you can't shoot, then teams don't have to guard you. And that's basically them playing five on four elsewhere. And so if you're DeAndre Bembry and you can do some things with the ball in your hands, that's fine because they still at least have to guard you when you have the ball. And when you're Justin Anderson, they don't have to guard you at all. And that's that's where it becomes a problem for you offensively. Prince doesn't have those problems because he's got a lot of gravity as a three-point shooter. So that's something that that matters for him. And I think that's the biggest thing for him offensively. That's the biggest Positive for him, you know, I think at this point. And so, you know, whether the defense comes around is an open question. I don't think I I wasn't as impressed. I don't think with his last, you know, the last few weeks of the season from him, you know, I think just the, the overall picture is still very negative for him on that end. Um, it's a little Whether more clear,
0: by the way. Just, just, just so, just so I can say that out loud. It wasn't as if he was good. He, I thought he was better, and that that isn't the same thing. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, uh, I think
1: if he was like the fifth per, in the fifth percentile of wings across the league in in you know the first six months of the or the first maybe four months of the season, maybe the last two months he was in like the twenty fifth percentile. So like he improved, but it wasn't like a good thing. Like it wasn't. It, it was a good thing that he improved, but it was not a he was not good on that end he was not even below no. average he was worse than that so like that's gonna have to turn around at some point like or else he's going to be more of a a specialist more of a ninth man rather than being a you know third or fourth man you know on a team and he that's the difference between being paid five million and being paid like eighteen million and and whether that will show up whether in, in in extension negotiations as we get into October or in his next contract uh, in the summer of twenty twenty, we'll see, you know how much teams are really paying attention to how bad he is on defense on a team that's not very good and doesn't you know that he can probably you could you could you could construct a case that he his his defensive weaknesses are, are sort of a team wide issue, especially this year where, you know where the Hawks didn't really have much of a defensive system. I think that the, that Prince's defensive woes could be blamed on some of that. I still don't think that it's not something that I would do. I would not buy that that argument particularly uh, strongly. But you know he's that's his that's going to be his issue is is that he's really a, a very poor defender at this point in his career. And he wasn't that his rookie year, but the last two years of him being a full-time starter and having to expend energy on both ends of the floor, the energy has not come on the defensive end. And he's not, despite being six foot eight and looking like a, an all world athlete, he is really not very athletic. Like Kevin Herter is not somebody you would look at the two of them standing next to each other. And you would not think that Kevin Herter is a better athlete, but he is a much better athlete than Torian Prince. Prince is just, he's not quick laterally. He he can dunk, obviously, at six foot eight, you would expect that. But he's not a high flyer. He can't. You know, he's he certainly is never going to not never, but you know, because you know he's still young. I, I never want to say never with these guys, but he's not a, a he's not somebody who will ever be a, a, blo- a shot blocker at the rim. I don't think he's never going to be somebody you look at as a high quality uh, rim protector at the, at the three spot or at the four spot that's why they can't play him at the four is because he can't rebound he can't protect the rim because he doesn't have he doesn't have the energy and he, or he doesn't give the effort and he doesn't have the vertical athleticism that that is really needed at those spots or at, at the four spot and so he's you know really stuck as, as a three which is fine because that's the scarcest position across the league so you know you you want him to play more three than four anyway but he's he's not laterally quick enough. He's not particularly strong at, at, at six, eight and, you know, however much he weighs. And so it's just, um, I guess I'm as, as great a shooter as he's been. And as much as his offensive game has ticked up, I mean, he was better at the rim this year, really great from the corners. You know, like he's a really good shooter and I think he's a positive offensive player. The defense is so incredibly disappointing based on what he could be at his size with his kind of length and skills and and what he showed in his rookie year and how much he's regressed has been uh, really the biggest disappointment throughout uh, across this entire team over the last few years.
0: Yeah, it's been frustrating. And I think that's something that you don't get a full picture for unless you watch the team every single night, every single minute, like some of us do. Um, I think nationally, Prince's reputation is much better than it is locally because if you just come in for a game and see him play well and you see, like you were saying, you see the 6'8", 220 and his shooting numbers and you think that guy, you know, 3 and D guy. Um, but if you watch him on a nightly basis, it's been maddening for a lot of the last two years. A couple of stats I wanted to throw out there. Um, one positive is that he is a legitimate now 39% three-point shooter over two seasons. That is excellent. At 6'8", eight you know, the size still does matter. If you're able to shoot like that, you'll have a job for a very long time. Even if you can't do really anything else, he can, you know, and he, and by the way, he does more than that, than just that. But just being a, you know, maybe elite is too strong, but he's a very good shooter. And that really helps. Um For instance, you know, this, this year he, he had a career best 57, 57.5% true shooting. That's very, very good. A lot of that was because he took um more of his shots from three and made a lot of them. But Efficiency-wise, offensively, that's a very, very positive thing. On the flip side, you referenced this in passing a minute ago. He is a comically bad rebounder. Like I can't, I honestly can't believe how bad he is as a defensive rebounder. And you know, just for the record, I'm going to use defensive rebounding for this because offensive rebounding, I don't really care about for someone like Torian Prince. It'd be nice if he did it, um, but in the grand scheme, you know, that's not really his role. He's a, he's more of a shooter, perimeter guy on this roster, so I don't really care about that. So let's talk about defensive rebounding alone. He had the same. Defensive rebound rate this season as Jalen Adams. Yeah. Jalen Adams is a small point guard who isn't a nuclear athlete. Uh, Torian Prince, again, we talked about this, is 6'8, 220. The only guys that he had a better rebound rate this, this year um, than are Kevin Herter, who is a rookie who is not strong just yet. I agree with you that he's a better athlete than Prince, but it's just not, it does not play with a ton of force. Trey Young and Jeremy Lin. Everybody else. Um, and that includes guys who are smaller than Prince. Tyler Dorsey, Kent Bazemore. Um, Bembry had a, you know, much, much better, six percentage points better defensive rebound rate than Torian Prince. And Bembry is probably two inches shorter and 30 pounds lighter. Um, it's just, it's absolutely inexplicable that he can't rebound. Um, and I think that's a, there are very few things in the NBA that are, you know, uh, energy-based and effort-based, I think that is one of those, especially when you're his size. Um, that is something that will just drive you crazy, is that he just does not rebound the basketball. Uh, so that's just a couple of things that I wanted to, uh, wanted to throw out there. We talked about his defense quite a bit. Looking ahead a little bit with Prince, he's uh, just like Ben a little bit older. He's uh, He'll be 25 and Sorry, he already, he already turned 25. He's 25 in March. So... Next year, will be his 25 season. He'll turn 26 toward the end of his fourth season in the NBA. He's under contract for next year. What are you looking for from Torian Prince? I mean, defensively, it's clear that we want him to improve. But, you know, beyond that, is there an offensive point of emphasis for you that you want to see differently from him? Because the shooting is there, but is it just shot selection? Is it just kind of playing within himself more? Because his usage rate actually went down this year, and it went even down even lower than that when he came back from the injury. And that resulted in an efficiency uptick, so maybe that's working out for him and um, being just a more of a pure supporting piece. Something that I've always wanted him wanted to see him do, because I think that's part of the reason why the fan base got a little bit out of whack with Prince was that he was playing as this primary guy last year in March and April when teams were not really trying, and he was putting up twenty point games. But in reality, we saw this year that he's just not that he's not going to be that kind of guy. He's definitely more of a supporting piece, and maybe just that reality setting in for him might be helpful in its own right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that from an offensive perspective, and of course, defense. We we just talk, we just talked all about it. Like he has to improve on that itself. end. <laughs> it is what it is at this point. On the offensive end, he's you know he's an he's a sub elite shooter, not a super elite shooter, but a very good shooter. And that's what he needs to focus on. I think that's what he needs to be. He's he's the fact that he shoots as much as he does, and the fact that he's not necessarily a Particularly good playmaker for his teammates. The fact that his turnover rate is as high as it is is almost as astronomically bad and, and confusing as his defensive rebounding rate. Like how how is somebody who shoots, who catches and shoots as much as he does, how does he turn the ball over as much as he does? Like it just doesn't it doesn't make a ton of sense to me why his how he turns the ball over so much. And I think honing his role to really being a very good to, to almost elite three-point shooter on that end. And really fo- focusing him on that, I think that would that would help him a lot. I think the the, the, the true shooting numbers and the, the field goal efficiency and, and effective field goal percentage, all of that stuff takes into account how well he does when he shoots the ball or when he gets fouled. But it, every time he turns the ball over, of course, that's basically like shooting 0% from the floor, and he turns the ball over a lot and that's a problem and i think that's that's where i would go from you know for his his offensive game going forward is that he maybe he he maybe needs to play within himself a little bit more and not necessarily try to put the ball on the floor and and make something happen for himself or his teammates as much as if the shot's not open and he can't pump and and take one dribble and and get something or pump take one you know take two dribbles and get to the rim maybe he needs to sort of back off of, on all the, you know, I, some of the isolation, some of the the running a uh, pick and roll, stuff like that, that just really hasn't, uh, has not worked for him so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point about turnovers, um, to his credit, I suppose, his turnover rate actually went down this year versus the previous year. It's still too high for what his role is as you lay out there. And he essentially has a one-to-one assist turnover ratio, which is really bad for someone who's often asked to play with the ball in his hands. Um, part of that like You're saying is just role based, and we saw a little bit of that come back this year when he was playing a more supporting role. But, um, yeah, I mean, as a player right now, Prince has value, there's no question about that. I think, almost in some ways, at least in some corners of the fan base, the hate almost went too far mid season to the point where they were like treating him like he had no value. That's not true, you know, at, at his age with his shooting, you know, trade value wise, he's still a pretty intriguing piece. Um, I do think. Of all the guys that are currently on the roster that are seen as like potential core pieces, he is by far the most likely to be traded this summer, just because you know he wasn't a draft pick. Is something I've said a lot, but he's was not a draft pick of Travis Schlank. He only has one year one year on the contract. So if they don't if they decide they don't want to pay him after next summer, you want to trade him now probably because you don't want to get into a weird rest- restrictive reagency agency battle with him, etc. So it might may not be a firm decision that they have to make, but in some ways it kind of is that they need to kind of to figure out what they want to have with Torian Prince moving forward and that might be the summer. So keep an eye on that. We could probably end on that unless you have anything else that you want to just Yeah,
1: the one the one thing with Prince that is harder to measure and harder to even just see from the outside, but is something that I've gotten the inkling from talking to guys on the team, talking to the coaches, just just an inkling of he's the Justin Anderson conversation that we had about him being a great guy and a great teammate and a great leader. Let's just say Prince doesn't exude a lot of the same characteristics in that department. Uh, You know, it's not something that necessarily has to be taken into consideration. There are plenty of people who are not particularly great you know people to be around who are very good basketball players it's not something that would would change my mind about paying him or or about keeping him around long term but it is something to keep in mind as as we move forward that he's people don't rant and rave about him and there are some whispers that he's maybe not uh, not the greatest guy
0: yeah i mean i don't you know i, I try to keep all the stuff that i hear um out there and stuff that I hear enough that I could pass along. You know, he, I, I would say that I echo the sentiment that he, you don't hear these same Ray reviews, but at the same time, that that does not mean that it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just that you don't hear it. Um, so anyway, we could probably leave that there for now. Um, and move on to the final guy and that's John Collins. Um, Collins, I would say a fantastic season. Um, no one would argue that, um, he was very, very good. People, I don't, I don't think he's going to win. But you know, the Hawks are putting out this um, campaign for him for most most improved player. He'll get votes in that category, I would imagine. For me, I don't like to vote for second year. We'll vote for. Uh, I don't like to endorse second year players. I, I don't have a vote. Um, especially with guys who had big time minutes jumps and that kind of facilitates, facilitates production jumps. He was definitely better this season. He definitely did improve. Um, but all that to say, a guy that averaged you know almost twenty and ten for a full season. There's something to be said for that, even if he has some weaknesses. We're, we'll talk about those in some in uh, in the next couple of minutes here. But my big-picture evaluation of Collins was that um, it was a smashing success. Uh, everything went very well. He's still very young, and uh, he has exceeded any any rational expectation for what he was going to be, his number 19 overall pick, and well beyond that. He's definitely a consensus you know, top seven or eight guy in that class now, and uh, that is uh, pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he's – this was – not a a most improved kind of year because he played pretty well last year but it's it's you know he's the most improved guy on the team you know I think by a mile where you know he really did this was a a true breakout year for him and not necessarily just because he got a bunch of extra minutes and because he was able to up his per game numbers but like his you know his usage and efficiency both went up he cut down on his turnovers he's he improved in a bunch of different areas and i think that's where you know that's where i think that that's why this was more of a breakout year for him than it would be for another guy who just got more minutes and more touches he really you know was able to you know add a lot to his game he is now a you know, 36, 37% three-point shooter. Most of that is based on being very good from the corners, not as much above the break. You know, famously, he's the worst guy in the league with at least 50 attempts from the top of the key. That that top of the key pick-and-pop three was not very good for him this season. I think it was a below 20%. Like, it's really bad, but he can shoot from the corners, you know, at, at whatever it was, 38 to 40%. He can make the above-the-break three on the wings, you know, at maybe... 34 to 35 percent going forward. The pick and pop three at the top is going to be, you know, something that he can work on as he goes forward. But we weren't really thinking of him as a as a three point shooter coming out of last season. And now we're talking about him like a 35, 36 percent three point shooter. And that's where, you know, we had this conversation in the Alex Len section about whether Collins can play the five long term. And the the point, the, the the discussion around him having to play the five had more to do with the fact that he was a rim runner on both ends and he was somebody who wasn't able to play on the perimeter very much offensively. So you almost wanted to play him at center so that he could, so that you could spread the floor around him. And that's still going to be a thing that matters, but he's also able to spread the floor around somebody else who's a rim running center if need be. And so that's, that provides more value for him at the four. The fact that he's, you know the next step for him, and and Lloyd Pierce talked about this, the fact that the 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 next step for him is being able to facilitate from the elbows, being able to 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 handle the ball. I mean Blake Griffin is somebody who comes to mind as as a a long term comparison for Collins, sort of at his ceiling offensively, as somebody. You know Blake was basically the the point guard for for the Detroit Pistons these this year whether Collins can get there is is obviously a, a very open question. but the fact that it's even an open question is not just a an open and shut question. We're not talking about Alex Len being a, being a, a point forward you know we are but we are talking about it with with John Collins and I think that's you know the fact that he's in these conversations as an elite offensive power forward is is has been such a, a huge breakout for them and for him this year.
0: Yeah, o- offensively he basically improved in every single category this year um his shooting improved by leaps and bounds um his assist rate went up his turnover rate went down um more usage um with increased efficiency is obviously pretty impressive um you know his facilitator his facilita- facilitation as like a short roll guy he flashed he flashed that flashed out a little bit um you know rebounding wise he's very good of course especially at a power forward spot so you can't argue with really anything offensively right now you know the one thing that I've, then you mentioned it was the top of the key shooting but you know his pick and roll chemistry with Troy young has been outstanding. We'll save We'll save all the tray stuff for the next podcast, but you know, a guy who averaged 20 and 10 playing 30 minutes a game, um, is, you know, kind of speaks for itself in a lot of ways. So, you know, offensively, not too much to be negative about at all. Obviously he was, he was awesome. Um, the other end of the floor is more of a mixed bag. And I know you and I, have, you and I have talked about that quite a bit on this podcast and I've kind of gotten famous for it at least, um, in some circles for being a little bit pessimistic about Collins. And I think he's definitely proven us wrong on the offensive end. And I think as an overall prospect, he is better now than we thought he was going to be as a collective, Um, at least on from what we said publicly a year ago or even six months ago. But defensively is where the issues are still pronounced in some ways. He was better down the stretch. I think markedly so, but but prior to that it was kind of a struggle. You wrote about it um, in depth mid season, and this is just one thing. Uh, it goes far beyond this, but, you know, his block and still rates were way down this year. And that's the stuff that casual fans can even notice because that's what you see in a box score as a defensive player. And they kind of just went away altogether. They came back at the end of the year, which was encouraging. But where are you at with Collins defensively now versus, you know, two months ago? And then compare that to where he needs to be in the future.
1: I think he's, he improved a ton over the last like six weeks of the season coming out of the all-star break. All of a sudden, some of the, the defensive rotations that he would just completely miss in the in the first part of the season, all of a sudden he was kind of there and he was jumping with verticality and he was using his vertical athleticism, which is out of this world, to contest at the rim. And he's not super long and he's not super tall as a, as a rim-protecting, you know, rotating power forward, but because he can just jump out of the gym, he can get his hands to as high as they need to be and as high as most you know rotating you know, power forwards can be and he was doing that more often like it was always it was never an athletic issue with him it was always a recognition and mental issue with him is that he just never coming into a, you know right about the all-star break he never saw things that he was supposed to see defensively he never saw when his guy or when his teammate got beat and he needed to rotate over he never saw when his guy would you know would cut back door on him like he had these defensive lapses that were almost entirely mental and at some point might I thought at some point might click I did not expect them to literally like just flip like a switch uh you know after the all-star break I think it's not necessarily that he's an above average defender on that end already but he's creeping up toward being average if the last you know 6 weeks or so of the season or you know his baseline moving forward, whether that's true or not is is an open question. We'll you know we'll we'll sort of see as he gets into next season whether that defensive effort, whether that defensive recognition, whether that mentality remains going into the year, or whether it sort of wanes. And this was sort of a more of a blip than than a, a new baseline going forward. But it was it was the first time in his career that he had shown any level of any any baseline that was above being very bad on that end of the floor, and it was so that was the the biggest positive for him you know going into next year and coming out of this season was that he showed at least some willingness to or not just some willingness to improve but some actual improvements on the floor with his recognition with his mentality with his effort level with just everything across the board was was better in those last 6 weeks and i think that's where that's where he's you know that's almost just as important an improvement as everything else that he did. You know, it's it's probably not as important because if he's this kind of elite offensive power forward, then it doesn't totally matter what he does on defense, but it would be really nice that if, if this is a new baseline for him, then he's a, like, 20 to $22 million player. Like, this is not... It's, it's funny to think about where we were six to eight months ago, where I was... Maybe a little bit less public about it than I I wanted to be or, or whatever. But I was not sure that John Collins was a starting center coming out of his rookie year because he was a or I I, did, I wasn't sure that he was a starting player like a starting power forward or a starting center coming out of his rookie year because he was not big enough to play center and the defense was such a concern and the fact that he didn't have a much uh, a very widely varied offensive game that he was he was more of a rim runner and then when once his athleticism sort of waned like what was he going to be offensively the defensive questions were still huge and then all of a sudden this season he's really become much more of an all-around player offensively the the facilitation is still the the next step for him offensively but that being the next step, like after that, what would you look at offensively there's not a whole lot left if he becomes, I mean not even a Blake Griffin level facilitator but if he's able to facilitate from the elbows and make you know smart backdoor passes be you know be a DH be a DHO guy from the elbows you know take his guy off the dribble run some 4-5 pick and roll or some like 4-1 pick and roll with Trey Young stuff like that like if he's able to do that I don't even know what the next step is for him offensively. You know, I guess it's just to get better at everything, but at that point he really has everything that you would want out of a power forward, re- you know, reasonably, unless he's just, you know, a, a, you know, unbelievably special player, but he's getting really close to being elite on that end of the floor. And if the defense is not really bad, like it, it was through the first, his entire rookie year in the first, maybe four months of this year, and it's, creeping into like the 40th percentile, like just below average, but getting close to average. And then he makes another leap on that going, you know, coming down the stretch next year. And all of a sudden he's the, you know, at the 60th percentile of, of power forwards defensively. And he's rotating over, you know, more consistently and he's getting vertical and he's, you know, blocking shots and he's still rebounding well. And, you know, all of this, it was, it was just such an incredibly positive experience. It was such an incredibly positive year just watching him, Take all of the things that I was like, oh, I don't think he can do that, and just like doing them. And obviously, the offensive stuff was so was so much more pronounced, and he just really is very good on that end of the floor already. This, you know, as as a second year player, the defense turned around really just in the last six weeks. We're not sure whether that's a blip or a new baseline, but if it's a new baseline, like we're really we're talking about one of the better power forwards in the league, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if that's the new baseline of just being, you know, even slightly below league average defensively, he could be an all-star next year? Yeah. I'm not sure that, I mean, I'm not projecting that per se, but, again, he he averaged 20-10 and playing 30 minutes a game this season on a team that was playing fast, but, I mean, it wouldn't, given what he did this year, it wouldn't surprise me if he played 33 minutes a game next year, and averaged, you know, 21 and 10 and a half. And if you do that for a second straight season, you're probably making the all-star team. (laughs) I mean, especially in the Eastern Conference. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely fair to say that both of us were too low on John Collins, if you look back six months ago. Um, And that's fine. I'll own that. No question about it. Um, I think I echo everything that you said about what his weaknesses are still. But the things that we saw down the stretch... Are wildly encouraging, and I, you know, it, you cannot downplay the very apparent chemistry that he and Trey Young have. I think it can, get, it can get overrated a little bit sometimes because um, it's not like, you know, some of the stuff about oh they played together in Summer League and that that was the reason why this built. I'm like, no, I I wouldn't say that. I think they're just both very good. Uh, Trey Young is an excellent pick and roll operator, and John Collins is a f- fantastic pick and roll finisher. So if you throw, throw, throw those those two things together. And the fact that they seem to be pretty close off the court and they're young. Um, it's it's a fun story and they're awesome to watch. So there's there's all of that. But yeah, I mean, you see even when Young's off the court, you see it with Collins. Like he is someone who showed a more mature offensive game in a lot of different ways, and that's super encouraging for the future. You know, I think that and this is not this is not the spot for it right now, but there's still a an interesting debate and one that I, I find a lot of intrigue in. About what you want to pair Collins with in the front court in the future, um, the kind of player that you want next to him long term. And again, we'll say that for later, but as just the individual that he is, someone with, you know, excellent power forward size, decent enough center size if you wanted to play him there, and a, and a varied skill set and a lot of athleticism and skill, you know, it's obviously a heist of a draft pick. We, we, knew, we knew that long a long time ago, but he's just an awesome building block at this point in time, which is, uh, it's fun, man. I mean, I still think Trey Young's probably a better, is a, is a better prospect, but that's not a slot of John Collins. Like they have two, they have two very, very, very good prospects. And then we can get into Herder and all that stuff in the next podcast. But at the very least they have two, you know, borderline star level prospects already. And those guys obviously have much more to uh, grow beyond that.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the, the question at the top with him, whether he is the better prospect than than Trey young i mean it it, probably not like i guess if you looked at ceiling like even if john Collins' ultimate ceiling as the best player he could possibly be is blake griffin but a little bit better defensively
0: yeah I, i think young's is higher still
1: young's i mean young's true true ceiling is unbelievably high like really i mean if we're really talking about like his 100th percentile outcome it's
0: it's steve nash probably it's like probably better than Steve Nash. Well, you know what I mean, I though. Think, like, I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm more, I'm, I'm, more talking about like the guy who like could flash and be the MVP of the league.
1: Yes, which like Steve Nash a was, time MVP and a first ballot Hall of Famer. Right. And, not, I mean, and, and again, that's, and,
0: that's 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 the 100 percent outcome. but sure. it's it one that, that something exists. We would
1: ever expect. It's just correct if we're talking about you know hundred 100%, hundredth percentile ceilings for both guys. Collins is like you know perennial second team all nba forward maybe a a handful of first teams a handful of third teams but he's a he's a you know the fourth to sixth best power forward or fourth to sixth best overall forward in the league whereas like the hundredth percent outcome for trey young is like the best point guard in the league and maybe a multi-time mvp and a first ballot hall of famer obviously neither (laughs) one of these things are things that Uh, we're expecting him to to be and so you know we're you know, people, you know, hopefully don't take that out of context, but like those are the, the, the ceilings for those two guys. And I think because Trey's ceiling is so much higher, he's got to be the the better prospect at this point. The fact that he's younger, the fact that he went just, just one year of college, the fact that he's got the the extra year of of growth ahead of him that Collins doesn't have because this is, you know, Collins' second season, whereas this was Trey's rookie year. Like that's where I would have, you know, that's why I would have Young ahead of Collins in the the, the pecking order, the the likely outcomes or the 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 floors of where these guys are. I mean, Collins already has a better floor than Young, as you would expect, because he's had two years in the league. And so, what you know, if you were to, I guess the the expected outcomes or the 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 EV on on these guys, that would be a more interesting discussion because of where Collins sort of already is and where Young would still need to get to in order to be a better player than Collins, I think at this point. So, you know, that would be a more interesting discussion, but I do think that, uh, you know, from an overall perspective, I would rather have young going forward because of the extra year on his rookie scale contract and because of how much value he can bring at the point guard position, which is very much an offensively focused position.
0: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter obviously in the grand scheme, because, you know, that's just one of those fun debates that we can get into at another time. But, yeah, these guys are fun uh, together, and just to put a, put a uh, a point on Collins, he you know, year three is coming, and I would believe almost anything. So you know, that's a pretty fun place to be in, and I do think that you will see. This is a this is a prediction, but I think you will see some people that are doing like preseason all star predictions. Put John Collins on there. And I won't be able to argue against that, like given what he was able to do this year. Like I kind of pushed it off when people were talking about him as an all-star this year because he got the late start. He just didn't have the track record and didn't have the amount of games and playing time against the guys he was competing against. But if if you give him a healthy season where he's coming into camp and playing all the way through with no major injury, it no longer is crazy in any way, shape, or form. And given that he'll only be 22 next year, that's a pretty awesome place to be.
1: Yeah, you know it's it would not surprise me that if he played the first fifty games of the year that he that we'll see him in in mid February at the at the All
0: Star game. Pretty crazy, uh, given where we were even even a year ago. But uh, there we are, Jeff. That's uh, plenty on these guys. We're an hour fifteen in because that's what you and I do. But um, please plug yourself. And we are going to have another one of these podcasts coming up very soon on the rookies. Probably not till next week for a post time on that one. Because it's uh, we're getting into Thursday here, and um, these are very long podcasts, so I want you guys to have a chance to listen to them. But Jeff, please plug yourself and anything you got going on, because I know you are everywhere and anywhere.
1: Yeah, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at GG Siegel. That's where everything gets posted. I'm doing all playoff coverage pretty much right now. I'm going to have you know more draft stuff as we get into the draft on Peachtree Hoops, but for the most part, right now it's all playoffs, uh, pretty much across the board. I'm doing. Uh, two columns a week for the Basketball Writers, which is a new venture that I'm, I'm a part of. I'm doing a column every other week for Dime Magazine, UpRocks, where I, I share a space with you as well. Um, I've got every other week over at Blazers Edge as well. And as the Blazers continue to light the Oklahoma City Thunder on fire, that's interesting i've got a i'm literally going to write one right after we we do this that'll post on thursday along with this podcast so uh you, you can look for that uh, of course i run earlybirdrights.com which is the premier source of salary cap information i hope uh, a lot of people Agreed. really enjoy the the salary cap stuff and and i'll have more as we get into free agency on both players and teams as, in terms of looking toward uh, the, the future for for building these teams out in the, the summer of 2019, so that uh, you can look for my 30 teams in 30 days columns to start running on June 1st on uh, earlybirdwrites.com. Meanwhile, on earlybirdwrites, I'm doing all sorts of playoff breakdowns, stuff like that. I, I took a, a very deep dive into Utah's defense uh, after game one that proved incredibly untrue in game two where they got blown out yet again (laughs) and they didn't do anything of what i asked them to do which i don't know why quinn snyder didn't call me but he didn't and uh he uh decided to play the same defense and donovan mitchell was terrible and all defensively he's a good offensive player but donovan mitchell has been very very bad defensively in in this series and they're down 2-0 and don't look particularly in it but if you want to read about what my ideas were for utah's defense that's up there uh, I've written, you know, uh, numerous other things. And then I think the last place that I haven't talked about is Forbes, Forbes.com. Um, you can find some more salary-focused things over there. I, re- I wrote about DeMarcus Cousins and what his future looks like for for them, either yesterday or the day before. And so uh, you can find all of this stuff on Twitter. You know, I think the, the, the best place to follow me is there because that's where everything gets posted and, and it's a... a it's a, it's a better place to, to find all of the, the various places that I work.
0: Yeah, you're all over the place and that's uh, it's, it's a fun life that we lead and you are even in more places than I am, which is saying something. So uh, please follow Jeff. Jeff will be back um, in the near future to do another podcast. And uh, he is, I am very confident the most frequent guest on this podcast overall. I'm not sure how to go back and check out how many episodes Jeff's been on, but it's the most of anyone besides me. So thank you for joining me as always, my friend, and we'll do it again very soon. Thanks for having me. As for everybody else, please subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back again in the very near future, so uh, stay tuned for that.